Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I am Scott Phillips. He is Andrew Page Esquire, renamed, re-given that title because we've just decided it's our bloody podcast. If he wants to be Andrew Page Esquire, he can be, except if he's going to be Andrew Page Esquire on the basis of owning a business and the business is strawman.com, doesn't it seem reasonable that he at least tell us what that business does? Doesn't that seem like what he should do? Andrew, g'day. Um, What is Strawman? How are you, mate? Uh, We're a private online investment club. That staggers what we are. I yeah. am. I am. I can't believe it. Of you all learn the something you new up, every don't day, don't you? It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable, mate. Thank you for joining me. I should have said on Friday. I've got to be a frog in the throat. I've been trying to throw this cold for about a week and a half, and I just cannot get rid of it. Maybe it's a couple of couple of them back to back. I'm not sure, but if I sound a little bit under the weather, that's why. Um, I'm dosed up with codril and about four coffees, so I'll do my level best to to battle through without sniffling or coughing or sneezing or carrying on. Uh, but if I if I do happen to uh, to do that, then please please uh, forgive me that one. If I did on Friday too, please forgive me that one. I'll, I'll do my level best to uh, to kick on. How's your week been, mate? Yeah, pretty good. As I said to you off air, it's sort of, you know, the end of the year is in sight. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm looking forward to it, you know, just to take a bit of a step back for a little bit, as I'm sure most people are. So we should probably just, just not bother with the Bitcoin episode later, is that what you're saying? Or- oh, we can talk about cutting some episodes, but I think maybe we should keep that one. Okay, fair, fair, fair. No, we won't cut episodes. We will give you content right through the Christmas break. Uh, We're going to pre-record a couple of weeks worth of episodes because we wouldn't want to leave you without some content and a Bitcoin episode because I said I would and now I'm just... You know what? You know you make those promises to the kids like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Now I'm going to have to. Yep. It's kind of how I feel Start about now. the episode. You mate. said it. No, it'll be fine. I'm actually looking forward to it, mate. There's some really cool stuff we chatted about. Uh, speaking of off air, you and I chatted uh, on, on Twitter during the week backwards and forwards about some Bitcoin <laughs> stuff, which was a really fun conversation. Uh, and I think hopefully- I think that was, that was DM though. It wasn't on uh, Oh, DMs. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. You slid into my DMs. So, so, so people won't be able to see how that awesome points I was making. <laughs> or, or how great mine were. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, well, or maybe just- we saved ourselves from embarrassment. Let's let's Probably. find out. We'll try. We'll try and do a better job of the episode itself, mate. Um, I wanted to kick off this particular episode with a a reasonably serious, which is oh, we do serious stuff, but a reasonably serious message I got during the week from Rory, and I want your thoughts on this too, mate. And I want to address this respectfully and, and properly, Rory. So I'll do my level best, mate. I'll read it out in full, uh, and then I'll give my thoughts. And Andrew, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Mm-hmm. Rory says, "Hi, Scott. I'm a big fan of the Motley Fool Money Pod, and I'm a straw man member." I've been listening since Andrew's first stint in the chair. Put up with Doc, joking, love him, he says in brackets, and now great to have Andrew back. I've also been a member of The Fool for many years, although recently chose not to renew. Scott, I feel like, particularly as a father of young boys, you have a blind spot when it comes to Elon Musk, autism, and his personality. My eldest son has autism, and as my wife and I work tirelessly, tirelessly to advocate for understanding for him, I find myself in a rage every time you, someone else uh, I admire, denigrate Musk's personality. He has a personality-based disability, says Rory. For you to compare him to a 13-year-old is to point at an amputee and say how hopeless they are. Uh, my My 13-year-old can reach higher in the fridge than that guy. Despite all his success and fame, he is someone's son, and while I doubt his parents, brackets, I have not researched them, close back to listen, no, I don't think they do, uh, I know how they would feel to hear you say what you say about him. I would hate to think your sons would say something similar about my son if they met him. I've ripped you enough, sorry. I want to make you feel bad. 
because I want you to stop making me feel bad, not because I think you're a bad bloke. Up to you, obviously, how you respond. I would love to hear from you or the fool. Maybe you consciously disagree with me and will go on shaming him for his disability. Maybe one day you'll have a personal encounter that enlightens you. It will be a measure of you if you can assess your behavior and issue an apology with autism, a proper apology, he says. P.S. No politician's apology, which you ironically and correctly picked on in the very same episode I did. I expect I'm not the only parent of children on the spectrum or those listeners with ASD themselves, that's autism spectrum disorder, that would love to hear an apology or see some advocacy from a respected public figure such as yourself or your company. Regards, Rory. Now, Matt, you haven't heard this one before, so I'll, I'll let you uh, digest that for a little bit of time. Roy, I want to try and address this. So, firstly, thank you for, for sending the, the message through on Twitter. Um, I want to try and address it responsibly. I'm going to say, mate, I don't have the experience you have, uh, and so my comments may still not be 100% on, on, um, uh, on track. And so feel free to, again, give me some feedback, or other people listening, feel free to give me some feedback as well. I don't know, and I'm not actually sure that Nut Musk has been diagnosed or had that in the public domain it may well be the case i certainly don't know that he has autism didn't know he had autism or he's on the spectrum i've seen people uh, talk about that in the past uh, i'm also mindful that um, psychologists i've heard talk about other personality issues or disorders um, have refrained from and said we should refrain from trying to diagnose those things at a distance because of how we expect people act so i don't know that he does i haven't seen that he's been diagnosed with it if he has uh, my apologies i've just not seen it um, i don't so you, your point your point is valid, mate. I think um, it's I guess it's a question of as I said where we start from. Um, so not a politician's apology. Uh, let me let me half politicians apologise, but let me do the other half first. After that, uh, firstly, I don't know that he does, and so I kind of don't feel like I can apologise for making fun of his autism if he actually does have it because I didn't know he had it. So it's kind of one of those things where I, I am going to say. I think I need a little bit of a leeway on that one. If he does, he's being diagnosed and that's part of his diagnosis, then yeah, it was insensitive of, of me to to refer to it that way. So again, not knowing that he has, I don't feel like I can uh, be held accountable for it or, or to apologize for doing something I didn't know I was doing. Uh, but if he is on the spectrum, if he does have that personality disorder, then yeah, I apologize unreservedly. It's it's an unreasonable and insensitive thing to do. I don't, I think, I think hopefully there's a difference between criticizing the behavior and making fun of the behavior. So I was probably a bit, well, obviously was if he is diagnosed and has that diagnosis, been too blase with some of the jokes, right? Just easy. It's an easy, it's an easy joke to throw. Uh, and that is inappropriate if he actually has been diagnosed and it is an outpouring or, or say outpouring is the wrong word, an output of his, of his diagnosis or his personality disorder. So if that's true, then I absolutely unreservedly apologize. I think... What I would say is I will apologize for the description and the uh, throwaway lines that were insensitive if that's the case. I don't, I don't apologize for expecting a better behavior from a CEO um, because there are people's lives and businesses and other things that are uh, impacted by that. And so to your point about the other disabilities, I would hope that those with those disabilities, if it was impacting their ability to do their jobs correctly, either inside their business or that business's dealings with the rest of the community, uh, that actions would be taken um, to make sure that the very reasonable implication of that disability didn't impact on other people, uh, the way he might run Twitter, for example, or Tesla or something else. So I, and again, even even with some of the, the stuff that he puts on Twitter, if he's going to make jokes and those jokes are inappropriate, 
I don't think it's unreasonable to say that's not an appropriate way to behave, even if that um, behaviour can be justified by, or at least explained by, that disability. So Rory, I hope I haven't trodden on too many things I shouldn't have. I am absolutely no expert in uh, ASD. I'm no expert in personality disorders or responding to them appropriately. I don't have a high degree of training in these things, and I don't have your experience with your son. I hope he's doing well, mate. I hope he's, I hope he's listening. Um, so look, I yeah, I, I, I guess that's probably, I don't, I will absolutely apologise for the um, the way I described it, if that's indeed part of a diagnosis that I haven't, that I was simply wasn't aware, of. I would nef- definitely never make fun of someone with a diagnosis if I'd known that was the case. Um, so yeah, I absolutely apologise, mate. But I also don't resile from the criticism of the implications of the behaviour because they are implications. Now, whether they are reasonable or unreasonable things to do is an open question. And again, I might be. It, it might be insensitive in the way I'm describing. If I am, if I'm treading over it accidentally, I apologise. Uh, but I think it's I think it's also worth saying that someone with some, uh, I'll say disability, again, I, I, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, um, that the implications of their behaviour still have issues that may need to be managed, dealt with, whatever the right words are, to make sure that, if, for example, the way he runs Twitter, the way he runs Tesla, or the impact he has on the company or the wider society is still open, I think, I hope, uh, to discussion and criticism uh, because they are implications from those actions which have, in my view, um, negative consequences. So there, I'll put that out there, Roy. I hope that's I hope that's a reasonable response, mate. Thank you again for spending so much time to, it's a reasonably long message, um, to send me the message and to explain your concerns and, and your disappointment. I absolutely accept that. Now, you know, if, if there is a diagnosis I'm unaware of, then I absolutely unreservedly apologise. Do you have any thoughts, Ram? Or are you going to take the fifth and we move on? No, look, you know, he's the world's richest man. He's, he's going to come under a lot of scrutiny and comment and a lot of it's probably going to be unfair. I, I, think, I think it's just it's worth being mindful of these kinds of things but still mm-hmm. being able to call out bad behaviour that isn't, that isn't a direct consequence of, of uh, his condition, whatever it you may be. You have said so much more eloquently what I spent way too long stumbling over. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. All right, next question. Good. Let's go to a question from... Actually, there's two questions, mate. I've got a question from Lee, uh, and then it kind of rolls into different companies, but also a question from Daniel. So let's get to Lee's question first. He says, hi, Scott and Andrew. Love your podcast. It's the best part of my commute to and from work. As I like to say, Lee, obviously the rest of it's really, really bad, mate, but we'll take it. I had a question for the pod about the recent Domino's capital raising and share purchase plan. I'm a shareholder and wanted to know whether it was worth accepting the offer. I purchased about $5,000 worth of Domino's at $71.43, so I'm about 10% down, which I'm completely fine with because it's, I'm in for the long term. But I thought this SPP, the share purchase plan, may present as a good opportunity to dollar cost average down and take advantage of the offer. I understand you can't give individual advice, but principles and considerations would be helpful. All the best and full on Lee. Now, Daniel then asks... Hi, Scott and Andrew. He says, ticket code VSP for very special podcast. I like that. Mm-hmm. Got our own ticket code. Uh, thank you for your erudite answer to my recent question. Could you deliberate on how to value a company after it undertakes a capital raising? I pondered this after reading about the recent raising of $30 million by Polynovo. Thank you from Daniel. So, mate, there's some, some interesting... Um, questions around this one so how to think about the value which is why i want to raise this in the context of dominoes but also whether it's worth using spps to increase your exposure in a company's shares so i don't even know i'm going to just throw it to you mate i don't know whether you want to deal with the um how do you value it or whether you should take part but they're obviously all part of the same question so over Mm. to you how would you reflect on those questions from lee and from daniel 
Yeah, I start right at the beginning. I mean, wh- whether or not you participate, the company's going in this direction, right? And you've, you've got a certain ownership of it. So now, first step is, well, you've got a bit of news here. And I believe with Domino's, they're doing it to buy out all the, um, the rest of the uh, operations in Germany that they don't currently own. Correct. And so, um, yeah, so it's like, okay, that's good. Do, do I like it more or less than, than I did? If, if I like it a little bit more um, and the share purchase plan, or maybe I like it just the same. Just the same. Um, and, and the share purchase plan is uh, a reasonable, maybe even a bit of a discount to what I might be able to get on market. Then I say, hell yeah, go for it. Mm. But you don't even really need to get to that point if it's just sort of like, actually, I'm kind of happy with where it's at. It's X percent of my portfolio. Do you know what I mean? I I. Mm. I I, I know that sounds simplistic, but I, I think that's the main question here is do you want increased exposure knowing what you now know and now having the opportunity at a, at a certain price that's been, that's been put in front of you? Um, so there's that. For the, for the valuation, it actually, in a bizarre kind of way, um, it directly doesn't. So in terms of the balance sheet, you've gotten, um, you've gotten a whole bunch of extra cash there, but you've also got uh, a whole bunch of extra equity. So it all mm. sort of, it all sort of squares up. Um, the value of the business, though, is the value of its future cash flows. And so it's really how to, now that they've got this money, how are they going to invest that and what return are they going to get? And how does that impact the future cash flows? It's more of a roundabout way, but it's more accurate way of thinking of the impact on value. Yeah, that, I'm going to go with your last point first, mate. I think that's the one that most people tend not to consider meaningfully because... So let's say you've got a company that's trading at 10 times earnings, right? It's earning, I'm going to use the Polinovo numbers just for the fun of it. So it's earning um, $3 a share and the shares are $30 each. So it's 10 times earnings. When you when, when the capital is then raised, let's say they raise $30 million. This is a terrible, terrible example. It's not a Polinovo example because I'm going to raise more than them. But let's say they raise another $30 million. Let's say it doubles the share count, okay? The share price is still $30, but now there's twice as many shares. You're only earning $1.50 per share in earnings. So before anything else happens, raising capital, increasing the share count reduces your share of the current earnings. And that's that's unavoidable. So let's use WebJet as an example because it's probably a better one than Polynovo. During the pandemic, they didn't have enough money to stay afloat and they doubled the share count. And so whatever money WebJet's making in dollars, in total dollars as, at a company level, I'm now only, I own WebJet shares. I'm only getting half the uh, the proportional interest that I used to get. If they earn $10 million, uh, you know, in, in, of profits, uh, I used to get a percentage, a very, 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 very small percentage. But let's, let's, for the fun of it, let's say, let's say 1%. So I'd, I'd, you know, $10 million of profit, I'd get 100 grand. Uh, now they get $10 million of profit, there's twice as many shares. I only now get 50 grand out of that. So before they do anything else with the money, you are absolutely being diluted and your ownership interest falls and your share of the current profits falls. Now, they don't normally double their share count. Um, these are really extreme examples. I'm not sure what the Polynova one does was. Uh, Domino's a bit less again. So at, at, at the first point of call, to Andrew's point, uh, you, you, own, you own proportionally less of the business. The question for you is that money that you've then put in or other people have put in, what's, the, what's effectively the PE on that money? So the $30 million that Polynovo raised or the money that Domino's raised, I think it was about $150 million for Domino's. What's the P of that money? Thank you. What's the P of that money compared to the money that, that would create the current company's PE? Now, if you use that money to acquire something that was a PE of five, then you've actually increased, not only your, your ownership stake has been d- diluted, 
but the PE is actually four on average. You're actually better off. If they buy something that's got a PE of 100, then your ownership interest falls and your, the PE also gets worse. So it's, it, there's no easy and simple answer to the question in terms of what you should do or what it means. But Andrew's point is exactly right. It's simply a matter of how well they're going to use that new money they've raised. What return are they getting on that money? If they leave it in the bank, you're getting diluted with nothing to show for it. Uh, so that, that, that'll be the worst case scenario. And frankly, Domino's part of that money is, is going to the bank. They're going to pay down some debt. Now, if that debt's expensive debt, then you're pretty happy they're paying it down. But if, you buy, if you've got a company that's on a PE of, I guess, 40 or so times Domino's must be right now, and they use that money just to pay down debt and nothing else, then it de-risks the investment because the debt can't, you know, it's not as, as uh, risky. But the PE is going to go up by definition because no extra earnings from that other than a bit of interest saved. So there's some really, really difficult questions to answer. You're not buy. it's not the same company. If someone said you want to buy shares on market at $65, which is Lee's question, if it was on market rather than as part of a share purchase plan, then that's a simply a question of, do you like the business well enough to increase your ownership of it? Uh, but I would- I But would that's the starting point either no. way. I, correct, point. correct. Yeah. But as long as you realize that the business may actually be a less valuable business that you're yes. buying more shares of. Yeah. That, that's, that's, my, that's my follow-up point, but otherwise I think you're, you're absolutely right. In this um, case, it's interesting sure. because I, I, I don't I don't own shares in Domino's. Um, mm. I don't follow it too closely. But you, mm. as I understand it, they've already owned part of the um, operations in Germany. Correct. So did they trigger this option or was this option- No, it was put to them by the joint venture partner. Okay. Because my comment was going to be if they've elected to do it, presumably yes. they know the business well and they see value in it. Yes. Do, you, do you have a, a view on the fact that it was sort of pushed onto them? Do you think that- I have a- uh, not a strong view, mate. Um, I'm a shareholder. I think I, if I haven't said that already. Uh, I, if you go into a joint venture deal knowing that your partner can put you the shares, you have to go into it assuming, and I hope they assumed, mm. that it would be a good deal when they had to buy the business. Now, you never know for sure, right? The, the beauty of having a put option, which is, and by the way, I like, let's go into deeply into options, but basically the, the partner could choose to make dominoes buy the rest of it. Mm. So they, they well, They're, say, pre- they're yep, presumably doing it because they see better value elsewhere i i imagine or they don't all the business has done worse than they expected they went oh thank god we have this put option we can make you buy the rest of it now so imagine yep. you own imagine you and i went to a business together and we bought um page and phillips ice creams mm-hmm. and i could make you buy the other half of it and all of a sudden we open we open in a shopping center and that shopping center all of a sudden no one shops there anymore and you're like, oh, thank God I got that put option, Phillips. Here you go, take the rest of it at, at, at a price. We already we pre-agreed. And I went, but, but, but I thought it was going to be a great business. That's why I agreed to do the put option. You say, I don't care. Buy, buy, buy me out, I'm out of here. In that case, you're stoked, right? Mm. Um, and so that's the challenge. Now, hopefully, Domino's in this case went into the deal saying, if we got put that other half, we'd be happy to pay it. We'd be more than happy because we like the business. We want to own all of it, or maybe we choose to. Uh, I'm always mindful someone puts you the shares or the, the, the half the business. They're not doing it because they, they think this is going to be wonderful and, you know, I really want to be involved in it. They're like, oh, thank God we get out. For one, mm. one degree or another, maybe as you say, mm. there's better use of the money or they're concerned or they want to cycle their money or whatever it is. So I am hopeful that Domino's went into and signed a put deal knowing they might have that business put to them and mo- hopefully then realizing that it was well and truly a deal worth signing up front because mm-hmm. they'd be happy to own the whole lot. You should do that, by the way, with any deal. Same mm-hmm. as buying shares. If you wouldn't buy the whole business, 
you have no interest in owning the shares. Uh, but uh, I'm always mindful that if someone wants to put you the shares, they think they're getting a good deal as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it, right? They'd keep the shares. Do you know so how long I, ago it was that, that the contract was worked out? It's a very good question. I don't yeah. know that, do you? Okay. Um, so look, I'm not, I'm not, it's a small part of the business. I'm not super mm. worried about it, particularly, yep. it, you know. I, I Bottom line, I would expect that Domino's, the Domino's non-German business is probably more valuable than the Domino's German, Domino's German business. Mm. So in my mind, this actually makes the business slightly lower, very slightly lower quality as a result. Mm. If I have to buy more of something that's that's less good, you know, if you and I had a portfolio of companies and you said, I'm going to buy more of my 20th best idea or the 20th, you know, uh, the, the, the highest PE of these options, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that's a great idea. So yeah, it probably does slightly dilute the quality of Domino's business. Mm. I wouldn't say enough to make a difference to the share price, really, honestly, though. Do you know the thing I think that just to be a bit more practical with all of this, I think sometimes as private investors, you, the, there's a you feel a compulsion to do it because the offer is that. there. Yes. And because there's usually a small discount to market price and you think, well, I'd be crazy not to, not realizing it could actually just get to that price on market the next day anyway. And yes, <laughs> and, and whether or not you're right or you're wrong, like buying it at, well, I don't know what the mm-hmm. share price is, $70 or yeah. $68, yeah. it's really not going to make any difference at all. So yeah. that's why I always come back to that original idea of do I like this at least the same or more and I have money to invest uh, and I want to maintain my proportional ownership. Yes, okay, I'll do it. Other than that, it's just sort of like it's not. It's not. Don't. I guess what I'm saying is, don't feel as though you have to. Yeah. Um, it's it's whatever ten percent discount you may or may not get on market is is not going to be the the more important consideration. I 100 percent agree, mate. I think the um, yeah the, the fact someone says to you, "Hey, would you like to buy some shares of this?" shouldn't drive your behavior. If you weren't going to buy them anyway, don't buy them. I like Domino's. Yeah. I own Domino's. I wouldn't mind if I owned some more, but. I could buy any one of 800 companies. But as you say, mate, investors kind of go, well, I've got this letter in front of me and so now I have to make a decision. So, well, yeah. if you're going to buy it anyway, if the discount's massive, that changes the value proposition. Maybe if they said, look, oh, of course. do you want to yeah. buy shares for half price? You're like, that's a different conversation. Well, then you've got to wonder why the board's happy to give shares yes, away exactly. at such a high price. Like, well, hang on, that seems pretty desperate. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, gen- generally speaking, the-, the answer to almost all capital raising should be no. Yeah. Because if, if you're going to buy them anyway, or there's other better ideas, why would you buy them now? Um, to to the question about, where, question about where, average... Okay. Oh, sorry, sorry, a bit of a lag. Where I, where I think it's different is that a company that you love and trust mm. says, we've just got this incredible opportunity. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like we, we are gonna we're gonna buy this thing and it's just gonna be great and you and you're on board with that it's just like absolutely take is in fact the frustration there and I've had this happen more times than I care to admit is where <laughs> they do these big institutional raise and give mm. the the retail investors this little nothingness yeah. of it where you yeah. oh you can buy you know 10 grand extra it's like oh come on the investment bank I is going to be gone within a year has gotten you know 100 times that amount let me let me buy more I'm in on this but even then even then when that happens you kind of think well, I can always buy more on market anyway, right? So it's it's yeah. it's it's not a big a deal as as well, as again full circle. It it's not something you feel you must get involved in, and mm-hmm. if you don't, there's always an opportunity to increase or decrease whatever you need to do on market. Yep. Uh, to Lee's question about averaging down, I would I would not we said this before. I would not think about averaging down or up. Doesn't matter what price you you, you bought your last shares for. If you still like the business and you got some cash to interest point, you want it. It's your best idea. And they're cheaper than they used to be. Buy it, but buy it on market or with the SPP. Don't don't buy it just because they're offering it to you. Don't buy it just because your previous price was higher. If you'd bought it forty five dollars, you should be asking the same question. Averaging up is is perfectly fine. Averaging down is also perfectly fine. Just don't ignore what price you've paid in the past. Buy it if the current price is attractive. Yep. Um, 
I, I bought shares and dinos at higher and lower prices. Um, I yeah, if I like it today, I'll buy it today at this price, regardless of what the previous prices were that I paid. Just be careful too; you don't do the the, the trap that everyone falls into. I certainly mm. have is where you're thinking that lower price is is better value as yeah. well. How that sort of changes things. I'm averaging down, but I'm getting a better price. It, it happens all the time where the price goes lower but the value gets worse and what i mean there is is that the price is actually falling for very sound rational reasons some, <laughs> some bad news has happened yeah. of, of a material nature and so like if the fundamental intrinsic fair value of the business has dropped three by three quarters and the market has dropped by a half they're more expensive than they were before it all yes. happened yes exactly. and and so don't try and make yourself look a bit clever or make your make your losses look a bit better by by quote unquote averaging down you're actually averaging up in that in you're averaging up in a business <laughs> that's deteriorating so yeah just yeah and just to put just about some, some, some color on that as the analyst would say um, amp is a great example the yes. shares fell from twenty dollars to a buck, and over that time, you could have averaged down the entire way. And you just keep getting, you know, it's a terrible business, getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You're not, yep. you're not helping yourself by by having more money invested in it as the price falls. You would have been better not doing anything at all, or maybe even selling, um, as opposed to a business that's growing and doing really, really well. Um, it's just, Woolies um, listed at two dollars thirty now at thirty five bucks. Uh, most of the time during that period, you could have you could have invested in more as the price went up, buying at three, then four, then five, then six. You made a lot of money. So just just be careful you don't you don't look at just those past prices. Ice forward. Peter asks a question. He says, "Morning, Scott and Andrew. Great show. Thank you. I've heard that the stock market looks six months ahead. Is there any real evidence that this is the case, or is it a feeling?" If there is evidence, where can it be found? Appreciate you guys working over the holidays with a poking out tongue. Thank you, Peter. And that's from Peter. I love mm. this question, mate, because we kind yeah, of it's great. You know, there's a whole lot of um, a whole lot of things that we again you've you've said regularly. I go back to first principles. Things we assume is true. The market looks forward, does it? Okay, okay, you cool, yeah, cool. Yeah, but yeah. but does it really? What would you say to Peter? Well, it, it does, but but whether it's exactly six months, I would mm. I would highly doubt. Um, it is something that says, you know, the market's always looking. I've heard a, a year ahead or three years ahead. What, the, the reality is, is you've got a bunch of admittedly pretty clever hominids that have all got together. And some people think some things and some people think at others mm. and they're all operating in different environments and with, with different situations and contexts. And, mm. and we all just trade amongst ourselves. And some people are selling because they want to put a deposit on a house. Some people are selling because they hate the company. Some people are selling because they got margin called. Some people are buying because they're incredibly smart deep dive analysts and have spent six years analyzing this business. Someone read it on a forum and is buying it. <laughs> someone, someone is an index fund who's mm, buying it. Mm. And you layer this up and you up and up and up and, and there's all of these different parties all doing their same thing. It's, what, it's what's actually so magic about the market really. It, it, is, it is this beautiful mechanism that actually what you would say technically assists price discovery. And because price is a personal thing, right? It's a subjective thing. But it's basically saying, on balance, all of these people with an interest in this thing or a potential <laughs> interest in this think it's really That's roughly right. about worth this at this point in time. And, and you know, within that group, I'll guarantee you I'll find someone who's, who's thinking about six minutes ahead and there's, or six <laughs> yeah. nanoseconds in the case of a high-frequency trader. Yeah. And you've got someone who's thinking 60 years ahead, all within the and same And someone who's pool. thinking six months behind, right, who's using the last lot of data yep. and ignoring the future altogether. Yep. If now the, the better question is, what should I think? And I, and I think that is the really interesting question. I think what you should mm. think 
is I, I tend to think, and this is, this is completely anecdotal, there's, there's no hardcore evidence to back this up, although I bet I could find some pretty good supporting stuff, is that I think that when it comes to equities, to shares, your minimum is sort of a three-year outlook, ideally five and, well, yep. ideally forever, uh, yep. quite frankly, just, just leave that compounding machine to, to do its thing. But three years is enough where you tend to, historically speaking, there aren't many three-year periods ever where you've ended up worse than what you are. It allows sort of you to mm, look mm. through a lot of the volatility and ups and downs of, of, of kinds of, of things. Um, and in looking three years ahead, you, you're really asking, well, what does the business look like at that point in time? You know, what, what's it done between then and now is important. That's a, a forecast on the near term. But then also, what's its prospects look like at that point in time as well? Because that's going to affect how, affect how it's valued at, then. So it's, it's a, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a more practical way to look about it. It may so happen that I'm buying. You, I love your saying, Scott, you buy with the intention to hold. So it's not buy and hold. So you're saying, oh, this looks great. I don't think I need this money for the next five years. I'm going to buy some shares. And I think it's undervalued, et cetera, et cetera. You wake up three days later and the thing's gone 100x up. What a, it's GameStop or something. You know, yeah, the thing yeah. completely off your radar, just like, wow, that happened. Well, maybe you decide to sell in that extreme instance, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't the plan, but sometimes you just, well, you got you to play the hand you're dealt. And sometimes that's, that's, that's sort of too, too good to resist. Um, or it might go lower and you might decide, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tip even more in. But I think you use that as a really useful sort of framework. It puts, you in a, it puts you in a pretty good place. Trying to guess what things are going to be like six months ahead, it's a mugs game. Because even if you, and this is the last six months actually right now is great, particularly in the small cap space where I tend to operate. Because there's actually been, if you were to say six months ago, what does this handful of companies look like? And say, oh, they've performed better. They've got the order book has grown, more sales, et cetera. Happened across the board. And yet <laughs> a lot of the companies I'm talking about, their share price is down 30%. So, so that's where it becomes just, sentiment becomes too much the dominating factor of determining price. But three years, five years, it actually becomes the weight of the fundamentals that tends to be the more dominant force. And 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 that's they're both hard to forecast, sentiment and and fundamentals, but fundamentals is a heck of a lot easier than 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 sentiment. Yep. Yeah, great summary. I'll go back to Peter's question quickly and then I'll I'll kind of talk about some of the stuff you mentioned then we'll move on. Uh, Peter, there's absolutely zero evidence uh, because you're because we're looking forward six months no one knows what the six months looks like and so to try and prove that the, the the market was the only way you could do it is to assume the market was right six months out and that it was always going to be right you've took, took the price now and they said in six months time will the assumptions be correct there's no way you could actually prove it and you can't sum total those things up so it's it's an impossibility to prove that the answer to that question to Rand's point the market should be looking forward and the simple reality as we've said lots of times Share prices are are the sum total of future cash flows, and so you should expect that um, you know past cash flows don't matter. If the, those those market participants who are doing it correctly in air quotes, and there is no again no definite uh, answer to that either. They should be looking forward, saying what does it look like, and that's true. I will say that if you once you've done this for a little while, uh, six months. I wouldn't say six months. It's it's a I think whoever's told you that is probably just summarizing, guessing, giving you some approximations. But if you look at, for example, the recovery in the share price of travel companies in during COVID, right? Those share prices recovered well in advance of even planes getting back into the air, let alone mm-hmm. traffic numbers recovering. And that was because the market could, oh, well, I say because, that's probably because, no one knows for sure, they don't survey everybody, uh, but it's pretty reasonable to assume. That's because those people went, oh, we can see a time when 
COVID will go away, restrictions will be lifted, people will get back on planes, cruise ships, whatever. So we're prepared to pay more. And it's a, it's a permanent perennial auction system, right? So we're going to pay more because we think the share price is too low now based on what the future might bring. I would argue the market over the past 12 months has, I, I think, overshot on the downside for what it's worth. I might be wrong. On the basis of rates going up that hadn't yet gone up. And in fact, we saw in November despite the fact we had the seventh rate rise here and the eighth was still to come, as we now know, the market was up 6% in November. And I would put some of that down to an expectation of, actually, we think the market's already priced in the worst possible news. Maybe it won't be quite that bad. And so you do have, generally, I think as a market observer, it's reasonable to, I think, assume based on my history, yeah, maybe I even completely disagree, but my, my sense from having watched the market long enough, and I don't spend a whole lot of time doing macro analysis at total market levels, it doesn't interest me that much, but um, particularly if you've got an ETF, I guess it matters. Um, the, the, the reality seems to be that market movements happen in advance of expected economic outcomes. And I think it's just because people look forward and go, oh, the coast is now cleared. Now, Andrew's point, it's a waste of time looking six months ahead because it just doesn't matter. Um, but you de- you tend to see sentiment move markets in those sort of directions. Largely, I think it's reasonable to say for those kind of reasons. Six months isn't a bad average, I don't imagine, actually, if you think about some of those short-term movements. But the value creation, you just talk about the, the waves, right? The swell goes up and down. But the real value creation, to Andrew's point, at a company level, even at an index level, is just what is the what is the total future look like? Where is the opportunity? Quick plug, by the way, in a future episode, we're going to pre-record a couple. Um, we're going to talk about some areas of value creation where an investor can find um, some opportunity to make some money that that is hopefully market beating, uh, yeah, and some of the answers will come from come from some of these types of ideas. So we'll talk about that. Anything else on that, mate? Uh, it was, and I've just gone blank very quickly. Um, I'll sing you dance, and we'll see if you can remember it. Ah, oh, bugger. I was going to make such a brilliant point, and <laughs> it's completely escaped. The highlight of the podcast of 2022 just passed us by, Phil, so just unfortunately. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me move on then to a question from Lucas. If you recall, maybe we can always, we can always jump it in. Okay. Lucas says, hi, Scott and Ram. I've got a question for the mailbag. Excellent. I'm, I've mainly been investing in broad-based ETFs, but I want to start putting effort into some individual companies. I like Ram's opinion of knowing a small amount of companies in depth and thinking this will be my strategy. How many companies do you both think is realistic spending about 30 to 45 minutes a day on this project? Thanks for the pod, guys. That's from Lucas. So this is really interesting, mate, moving away from ETFs to individual companies, but also being realistic about what he can kind of do in in a given amount of time. How should you kind of frame up what's reasonable? If he thinks about, okay, I've got 30 to 45 minutes a day. How many companies can he kind of, you know, how, how should he work out his time so he's doing enough work on enough companies uh, without spreading himself too thinly or maybe not spreading himself thinly enough, being too concentrated on a, on a couple of ideas? I love I love this question. It's great. So, Good, first thing I would say is it's not, it's not something like a, you know, a fitness regime or a diet or something where it's the same amount every Thank day. God. What you'll find with investing <laughs> is you'll you'll find a bit of time, you'll start looking into a bit of a business and a kind of like that effort is never wasted. Mm. Like, you know, to sort of stay away or to pop it on a watch list or to buy it yeah. and to keep, yeah. you know, keeping track of or whatever. Um, once you've done that work, staying up to date, if you've got 30 or 40 minutes a day throughout every week to dedicate to it. I think that's heaps yeah. of time, heaps of yeah. time to stay across 20 companies, I would say, because the, the great thing is, is that once you've done that work, once you've got to understand a business and maybe at the start, I don't want to put a number on it, but I don't know, mm. maybe it's 40, 50 hours of reading, 
Mm. You know, maybe it's 20 hours. Depends how, you, how deep do you want to go, right? Some people go to insane depths. Other people go to a pretty good depth, <laughs> and, but, you know, without having to go right into the weeds. But, but yeah, once, once you've done that, I think, I think you, can, you can handle quite a few companies. As we've often lamented, the, the trick with it is, is you've got all this, these weeks where nothing happens and then everyone reports at once and you find, okay, now I've got 20 companies to catch up on. But usually there's nothing, there's nothing immediate. And the one that is more immediate, you'll just focus your attention on that and act in it in whatever way you need to. So I think if you've got that much time per day, uh, you're laughing and, and you, don't, you can leg into it, right? So I just sort of like, hey, I've got this yeah. time today. After a couple of weeks, you feel as though you've got your head around a company you really like and you think it's worth Buy some. Mm. Buy some of it. Now, you've only got one stock there and the ETF. So overall, you're still yep. incredibly diversified. And then you spend your next little bit of time on, an, on another company. You'll, you'll find that you'll build something up pretty decently. Um, yeah. I like that, mate. I, I'm going to add just a couple of thoughts. Um, I think the other thing I would say is there's an amount so so investment research i think there's three elements to me mate and you might disagree there's three elements one is understanding the fundamentals of company i say valuation but i kind of almost mean i guess i mean accounting and valuation and kind of just understanding your way around businesses so i'm thinking about you mentioned the financial statements and the and the announcements and uh, you know things like source of competitive advantage. We've done a whole episode on that. Go back and check in the uh, in the podcast feed if you missed that one. There's stuff that is kind of generic that you need to know. I don't think you can pick up the Woolworths P and L from if, if I if I if I gave my young bloke the Woolworths annual report and said, mate, tell me I should buy that share those shares or not. You'd say, well, I, I don't know what are receivables and is is cash flow generation good or bad and what is invested capital and so I think there's 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 part of the, part of the time you need to spend understanding the actual structure of business or business models, sources of competitive advantage, how businesses win. I, I kind of can't really summarize that in a, in a particularly clever way. Maybe you've got an idea, mate. But so I think there's, there's part, that's part of it. I think you need to do that before you even start looking at individual companies. Now, use individual companies to help learn about that stuff. But I don't think you can pick up, as I said, Woolies annual report, decide to buy it without knowing the other stuff. You know, mm. why will Woolies keep winning? Uh, what does their balance sheet look like? You know, how do, they, how do they fund their operations? Is there too much debt? Those things you kind of need to know. So I'd start with that. Second one, I would also then understand, we, we do a lot of this, so hopefully by listening to this podcast, we've pretty much hopefully nailed most of it. It's just the behavioral side of investing for you and for other people. Understanding the role of sentiment in the market, we just talked about that. Understanding psychological biases when you th- want to buy or not buy a particular company. Understand your own failings as, a, as an investor, as a potential investor. And I don't mean failings in a negative sense. I don't mean to make it negative. Uh, but our behavioral biases tend to blind us to things. So they tend to be negatives by definition. Or they tend to make us do things we otherwise wouldn't consciously do. So just, just be mindful of those things that would sway you from making good rational decisions. We're all irrational. I'm irrational. Andrew's irrational. Every listener is irrational. The best you can do is understand it, try and you know, mitigate against it. Uh, so, and then the third thing is the company stuff. And I guess I just want to, I want to make those two points about, about understanding about business and understanding about your behavior as an investor and other investors' behavior because I've, I've had, I've worked with some really great, I know some really great analysts who aren't necessarily great portfolio managers, uh, present, present company and, and present uh, team members mm-hmm. uh, excluded. Uh, there's one thing about being able to really do just the, the P&L work, right? But missing the idea of how people actually behave or your own behavioral biases. You can be a great psychologist and not know a thing about financial statements. Uh, so yeah, that, I think I would say there's three legs of that stool and the third leg is always company specific. So you get the first two done 
and then have a think about the individual. And I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from doing it, by the way. I'm just saying these are parts of the discussion that aren't just company specific in terms of that 35, 40 minutes you asked about. Mm. So there's that. And then at a company level, I agree with you, Ram. I think, I think that's more than enough. I mean, if you, if you can do you know, two and a half hours a week or whatever it is over a year and then over five years and over 10 years, you're going to build up a massive wealth of knowledge because not only, by the way, if you do Woolies, yeah, you, you're forced to think about Coles and Aldi and Costco and, you know, if you do Westpac, you think about Commonwealth Bank and ANZ and, and National mm. Australia Bank. If you do, and so you, you learn about industries, you learn about, about business models, you learn about things you like. And so that becomes, the great thing about investment knowledge is cumulative, right? That, that I don't have to do as much new work on a, on a company now as I would have had to 10 years ago because I know the operating environment, I know its competitors, uh, I know the industry it's in, I know what the economy is doing. I can add just the company specific stuff to all of that background. And so it's a much, much, much easier thing to do when you get to that point. So I think, I think that's important. And in terms of companies then, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a slight difference to you, Ram, uh, and maybe mm-hmm. to the question. I, I want your thoughts on this one. I, I, would, I think there's a Pareto principle at play here. I'm not sure that the 25th hour of reading about uh, BHP is as valuable as spending that hour learning about something new or a new company. Oh, there's diminishing think, returns at a point, yeah. Right, and I think that, so that's my point. You need to know a company well, but but not more than that. You know, it's the old line about making things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Mm-hmm. I think you want to know a company really well, but don't waste your time, to my view, you may disagree, uh, on, you know, I, the, the chance that the 48th page of the annual report has something that changes my investment thesis is so remarkably small. I'm probably still going to read it or at least flick past it. But I'm not going to spend a heap of time that just, the, 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 you know, think about where your sources of returns are going to come from. Again, we'll talk about that, as I said, in a, pre, in a few episode coming up. But I just, at some point, I'm like, I know, I know as much as I'm going to know here. And the chance that knowing more actually changes my investment thesis, my decision to invest or not, or my valuation or my expectations of that company, it's just really, really small. I probably know 95% after, I don't know, five hours. I pick a number, maybe it's 10. Um, so just also just think about, you know, yes, you want to know companies well. Uh, at some point, knowing it better than that makes you feel better. There's a great um, psychological study, I'll finish off with this, where that they gave people four bits of data and asked them to make a, a prediction. And then they gave them another 10 pieces of data and asked them to make another prediction. Each time they asked them to give their level of confidence. Turns out their accuracy didn't improve with more data, but their level of confidence went sky high. What does that tell you? It tells you that just because you feel like you know something better, you'll feel more confident about it. At least in that survey, it may not be, it may not be transferable, but I, I bet you it is. Um, just because you know more doesn't necessarily make you more right or likely to be more right. And in fact, it actually might introduce a bias, an overconfidence bias that may not be justified by the actual results you get. Yeah. Ram. Yeah, so I think the way to, to unpack all of that and make it and distill it down is I think always again back to first principles so what what am i really doing here i'm going to buy something on this exchange and you know if i really boil it down i just i'm hoping that it's going to be worth more in the future right so so everything's leading you to why is why will that be true why why will that particular view of 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 the of this particular share turn out to have any validity because if it's not i mean that's it's at best a guess right so <laughs> right. let's not kid ourselves yeah. here so th- yeah. now there'll be a hundred different people who'll give you a diff- hundred different answers my answer mm-hmm. is that well it's going to be something to do with a combination of mass psychology of, of the market as i said before sentiment and how the business is performing and has the potential to perform now i've got no control over the future but uh, I've, 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 I've got i've got a very 
hard job in trying to guess what a very large number of people are going to be thinking and what mood they're going to be in at any point in time. So that's hard. So I feel as though by default, you're left off with, well, will the business be a more profitable, more attractive generator of, of, of cash flows? That is a that is mm. a more reasonable question to sort of mm. ask it. So anything, if I'm looking at management, if I'm looking at moats, if I'm looking at business models, if I'm looking at any of the, the thousand things that you mentioned and the thousand more that you didn't, it's all to answer that question. Right. Because an I, the, the challenge I always throw out is find for me if you can. Someone will do this now and prove me wrong, but it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll be the exception. It'll be the exception to prove the rule, which will be find for me a company who over a five-year period whose earnings mm-hmm. have increased materially. You know, not have, like astronomically, mm-hmm. but, you know, they've, they've grown at an above, you know, GDP kind of rate over a five-year period of time and mm. started anywhere near what you might sort of term a quote-unquote <laughs> normal kind of market multiple it's almost impossible not to make money in 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 that scenario. You know, it, it, the business is as strong and is earning more. Like the only the only thing that's moved up is is the E. And if everything else stays cons- consistent, i.e., the PE, etc., the, the price has to move up, right? So it's sort mm-hmm. of it's not it's not perfect like nothing is because you might have earnings improve but the outlook deteriorate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think it's about the best thing that you can put your hooks into. And at least help direct you in any reading or thing that you're doing. And the question is always, is this entity a better generator of cash in the future? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a pretty good North Star, I think. And if, if you follow that North Star, you're, you're, you're probably going to be doing pretty well. And as I say, while sentiment always impacts it, my, my default is just assume a pretty average sentiment. I just don't rely on that aspect of it. And if I'm wrong... Well, I'm not too far wrong, and, and I wasn't. I wasn't betting on <laughs> on the market being in a great mood. But if the market is in a great mood, well, you know, whoop de do. I'm I'm doing even better. Um, anyway, that's that's how I tend to approach it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, man. I can't I can't add much more to that. I think it's it's a it's just a question of understanding. Yeah, what what you can bring to the table, how likely you are to be right, and just be a bit humble too. Um, the other thing is, particularly if you're saying with ETF portfolio, add small amounts. And just dip your toe in and just get, get a sense of as, as you go, as you learn more. You'll find that you'll buy things early on that you'll actually sell subsequently because you realize you've made a mistake and that's completely what you should do. It's completely appropriate and a way to think about how to, uh, how to do it properly. Uh, mate, I, I've got a question from, where's this one here? <laughs> there we go. Um, actually, can I, can I very quickly? Uh, yes. I just remembered my point from before. <laughs> oh, go on. Just in terms of looking ahead six months or, or whatever yeah, it happens yeah, to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was a little epiphany for me at the time. I think that the the desire to materially outperform the mm. market requires you to look further ahead than most are willing to look. Mm. And if you're the, the person who can sort of see things on the horizon earlier than other people, that's where the real money is made because you're kind of more or less in on the ground floor. It's a horrible expression, but you know, you, you know what I mean? The yeah. cost of that is is that you have to sit on this thing that's not going to do much for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. What what most people tend to do is they tend to wait until the success is obvious. And, you know- Yeah, that's it, right, yeah. It's like buying Amazon in, in 2021. Yes. Oh, it's a yes. great business. Oh, it's still got a bright future. And yeah, guess what? Everyone knows that now. And if mm-hmm. only you're looking out six months, it's kind of like, it's factored in, dude. It's it, it's already factored in. If you want the good returns, you you- you have to be early, not ridiculously early. And this isn't, I'm not saying you should start become an agile investor or a VC or anything like that. <laughs> but, but, but if, if your eyes, 
if you want, I think, in fact, one of the few edges you have as a private investor, and thankfully it's a super potent advantage, is that ability to to look at further ahead than what institutions often can. There's a bit of an imperative there that makes that much harder them, for them to do. And I'm not saying you have to be this kind of person who can wait for a 20-year thematic to play out, but you'd be surprised at just that three to five-year time frame, what edge, what edge that gives you. Um, so anyway, point made. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Here's a question for Richard, mate, which begs itself to be asked, if only because he he addresses us as, Dear, the Bert and Ernie of investing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just liked. Um, He said, uh, I'd like to say a massive thank you and hope you appreciate how the information in the podcast truly changes lives. The finance industry has over the years convinced us that we need to give them our money and trust them. However, your commitment to bringing sound financial management principles to the masses is so admirable. And I, for one, truly appreciate that. Thanks, Richard. Furthermore, as we head into camping season, you give me the strength I need to cope with certain situations. For example, I often find myself sat around a campfire with random families with the dads showboating about how they've spent 100 grand on a new caravan and paid extra to get the flashing multicolor LED external lights. Then when I say I spent nine grand on a 10-year-old second-hand camper trailer and put the other $91,000 in a diversified index fund, they look at me as if I'm the idiot. Thank you for giving me the strength to resist this. You're welcome, mate. All right, my question, hit this one for you, Ram. It's a property question. My question concerns commercial property. Given Ram's, quotes, strong views on residential property, does he have a view on commercial? Given the value of commercial property is driven far more by the numbers, in quotes, rather than sentiment, it appears if sensible commercial property offers a good way to take advantage of leveraging into a positively geared asset while also realizing capital gains. Although the long-term capital growth may be lower than equities, the increased income compared to equities and the leverage would suggest that provided you did your due diligence to choose a strong asset and factor your vacancies into the numbers, over the long term, leveraged commercial property may outperform unleveraged equities. Just like to know your thoughts. Regards, Richard on the New South Wales Central Coast. Good camping territory. Richard, glad you're yeah, enjoying the camping, question. mate. I'll, hopefully we'll see you out in the, uh, in the, in the camp somewhere. Uh, what do you reckon, mate? Commercial property, is that, is that the exception that proves the rule? Well, I mean, such a broad term. The way Richard has framed it, the answer is yes. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, right. I mean, because it's framed as if, 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 and if, and not not being yeah. critical at all. Yeah. But uh, yeah. if it, you've done your due diligence, if it's a good asset, you know, by definition, that's kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. going to happen. But if I, it, I'm just, I'm just want to hold back on sort of saying that yes, in general, commercial property, because there's some commercial property out there to be absolute stinker. There'll be stuff out there right now which is an absolute goldmine. Just as on the market, there right now, there's like hundreds of stinkers, <laughs> companies that are going to destroy your capital <laughs> yes, right yeah, now, yeah. even after they've fallen 90%. And there's others out there that'll make you a millionaire. So it's, 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 is commercial property worth investing in? Well, the answer is my favorite. It depends. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if, if you have honestly and faithfully done that due diligence and thought that actually this is somewhere that will likely remain in demand. There'll be someone, there'll be a tenant who'll be more than happy to pay this kind of rent. Here's what my cash flows look like and here's how I can structure it and here's the cash flows I can get out of it. 100%. I mean, I'm the first, I am the first guy in the pool. Don't get me wrong. If you, if you yeah. put to me an opportunity in the commercial property space that could deliver me a really reliable income and give me an average total return of, I don't know, make up a number 12, 13% because that's, you know, I'm a bit greedy. Hell yeah, hell yeah, especially relative to the risk. I'm all, I'm all over that. Um, yeah, sign me up. Um, 
if it's if it's after costs and everything three four percent well you know no thanks because the opportunity cost isn't worth it for me so it's a probably a frustrating answer but that's that's how i do it <laughs> no it's a good answer mate i i wasn't asked for my particular thoughts but i'll give them because that's what this podcast's about uh i i can't disagree with anything you said mate I, i'll a couple of things quickly richard um andrew mentions individual companies and individual properties i think one of the benefits of share invest I, i'm not a, i'm a shares guy right but i'm not a shares guy because i want to pretend shares are better than property no matter what and it's just what it's my, well, you're, it's my you're an investor you're right? an investor right, right? With exactly. a, i guess with a bias towards that but investing is investing is investing correct so um but so shares have a couple of things firstly you don't have to choose just one uh, there aren't many of us who can buy 10 commercial properties and, and diversify. So you are taking meaningful risk with a single property to Andrew's point. Maybe it's a stinker, maybe it's spectacular. Same if you I wouldn't, you know, if people said, should I buy a commercial property or a share? I'd probably say commercial property every time, honestly. Mm-hmm. Maybe I wouldn't actually. But, you know, mm-hmm. if, it was a, if it was a random one of each, I don't know, yeah. there's 2,000 companies on the ASX and probably 1,400 are terrible. So yep. actually, your odds are probably better if you had to buy one property or one share and you couldn't choose them. Go the property. I think, I, I think I'd go the property. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I still might, still might lose, by the way. Uh, so yeah, shares allow you to spread your bet, and that changes the the risk profile meaningfully. Because I, I was thinking as you were talking, Ram, you drive down the street, there is commercial property that has been vacant in my area for more than a year. Mm. Now we say the vacancies, Richard. I don't know how long the vacancy needs to be before you go belly up, but you know some properties just bad because they just get unlucky, bad places, bad properties, whatever, whatever. Mm. So just be be mindful of that. Um, uh, the other thing is leverage by definition is a problem, right? So if I buy shares and they suck and they fall 60%, then that just really, really sucks. If I buy a leveraged commercial property and it falls 60%, it won't, of course, necessarily, or maybe it's possible, I guess anything's possible. But, um, you know, the, 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 the exposure you have to a bad decision is just simply magnified. So what leverage is, right? It magnifies the upside and the downside. Yeah, so just be, just be mindful of, of that. Maybe you can still see it through if you can pay the repayments and maybe you've got this dud property and you have to pay it and whatever but just you know just just be careful on that um my so yeah look leverage 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 on property is going to do better than unleveraged shares almost by definition on average um be careful about that uh, i will say by the way i've done i said i think last week or week before maybe it's next week mailbag episode we've pre-recorded not sure i've i did some numbers on a property my wife and I were looking at. I just couldn't make it pay more than shares based on the assumptions I'd have put in, which might be wrong um, because the cost of interest uh, versus every month versus the money I could save every month, the interest was simply taking out too much off the returns. It just, even, even with the leverage, I just didn't get enough of a, of a return. So those, those things are, are potentially true. I think why so many of us gravitate towards shares is as you mentioned, there's that ease of interaction. It's mm. just like I can jump on an app, tap, 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 you know, I'm in the share market, uh, buying a property, commercial property, you know, not <laughs> yeah. least of all. Very, very difficult, illiquid, yeah. high value kind of things. Very, very difficult. Other to than do. that. <laughs> the the yeah. other thing that's great about shares, I think, just to mm. sort of sing their praises for a bit, is is that they have more risk. They're more volatile. And not, although that's probably a function of just the, the, of their liquidity. I've, if we traded some of these properties every day, maybe they would prove to be just as, just as volatile. Mm. But you do get growth potential that is impossible in a, in a property space. So let's say you yeah. bought the best yeah. property in the best spot just before the biggest boom. <laughs> you know, you might do extremely well uh, out of that, but you know, there are, there are companies who compound their sales at 20% plus for 10 years or more. It's, mm. it's hard <laughs> to, for, for a property on a, in average to, to sort of do that. And that's fine. That'll be reflected in the price. And that's a compromise a lot of people very sensibly take because of the different risk profiles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but that is, mm. 
that is why you take the extra risk, right? Uh, because of that potential and, and realistic potential too. Yep, nicely done. Let's go to a question from Stephen who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Two questions, actually. First, a quick but sincere compliment. Your advice has definitely improved my returns and made investing more enjoyable. Thanks, mate. In particular, your advice not to trade, but instead to buy shares in good businesses and, quotes, get out of the way. That's good advice, even if we do say so ourselves. Now, here's my question. Actually, I have two. One, why does anybody take chartists seriously? If the charts were telling them something, wouldn't they all be living on a coral island sipping pina coladas instead of constantly turning up on share market podcasts? I'm, oh dear. I've yet to hear a chartist with a sense of humor. Case closed. <laughs> That's very, very unkind, right Stephen. Yeah. That's very unkind. I, I don't screw you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, mate, why do people take charters seriously? I used to be pretty vocal in my thoughts on it. Uh, I've, I've learned to sort of go, you know, you do you. Uh, I, I don't buy into it personally. That's unlike uh, you to, uh, to to pull your punches. Come on. Uh, look, it's, just, it's one of these arguments that just, it's like politics or religion, you know. It's, I'm never going to change anyone's mind. I, I think pe- <laughs> people need to think for themselves. Yep. And, and look, yep. it, it, there's on both sides of both camps, there are extreme views that are both wrong, you know. So, look, if, if you find some value in it, by all means do it. I think it is an interesting observation yep. that when you look at the the roster of world's greatest investors there's no chartists amongst them um i think it's i think it's well i just philosophically ideologically where my problem with it is is it's predicated entirely on what happened you take past data and you extrapolate forward yeah and it's only price data and volume data and that kind of stuff and it's just sort of like well something could happen tomorrow that just changes everything it makes it all irrelevant um Others will say, yes, but, well, you're still doing that with fundamentals, right? You're still having to forecast. And it's like, well, that's, right. that's true. It's just, as I, my, my previous point, there, you know, forecasting that Woolies might be around in five years' time and maybe compounding its earnings at 2 or 3% is a much lower risk bet than, you know, we're going to see a 6.3% share price spike between now and next Thursday. Uh, so, it, anyway, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guarding myself and sandbagging myself because I just don't want to deal with the hate because I know from experience that it does <laughs> engender a lot of emotions and and I'm, I'm really I, honestly That's if it works true. for you absolutely do it right and and I'm, I'm not, I won't talk you out of it it's just not right for me I'm going to I'm going to I mostly agree with you Andrew actually um, I don't use charts I don't think they are likely to be good predictors because um it, as you say, mate, it includes nothing about what's actually changing and assumes that, that, that a squiggle is a squiggle is a squiggle no matter what. And I think that's mm. that's probably not great. What I would say, though, Stephen, let me re-ask your question. Why does anyone take fundamental analysts seriously? If the fundamentals were telling them something, wouldn't they be all living on a coral island sipping pina coladas that have constantly turning up on share market podcasts? Ah, I'm yet to hear a fundamental excellent. analyst that's actually funny. Case closed. So, uh, so you know, so people excellent. have... And people have said to me before, oh, if you, you're, you're just selling your advice, you're any good at this, you'd be doing it for yourself. Why would you tell us what to do? Why wouldn't you do it yourself and make a fortune? Uh, now, there's answers to that. On, and both, in both cases, the answer is because I wasn't born with a seven-figure trust fund uh, that I could just you know, invest for a living. Uh, oh, I you, should, money. you should really do I, that. Uh, that's, that's I, I should, exactly. should have my parents. Why didn't you do that? Wonderful parents. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, because we don't start with massive ca- capital is, is probably the first reason. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm giving, I'm defending charters slightly, Stephen, just to say that 
Uh, we can say the same as you said, Randall, about fundamental analysis, right? You can ask exactly the same question. Mm. I don't think it's likely that charts are very useful, as Andrew says. Uh, hard to use really, really well. They don't take changing circumstances into account. Um, and you're always trying to guess what other people might do next. Um, the madness of crowds, as Sir Isaac Newton said, that was his famous quote, right? I can, I can uh, predict the movements predict. of That's right. planets Stars, and heavenly bodies the, yeah. and whatever. But not the madness of men. So, you know, pe people do stuff. And I think, I think that's... We know the, the we we know from history that the, the market overreacts in both directions regularly, so trying to guess that is just too hard for me. That being said, um, behavioural finance is not miles away from charting in concept, which is at times when people are too pessimistic, <laughs> can't buy the shares when they're too optimistic, sell the shares. Yeah, you know, there, there is some you cannot time the market, but you can understand company prices in the context of their, you know whether they are cheap or, or expensive relative to the value of the business, which is to some degree looking at the behavior of everybody else saying they're wrong or they're right. Mm. Um, fundamentalists tend to try and find reasons where the market's wrong. Charts tend to believe everyone's right. And so writing that wave one way or the other, um, those are horrible generalizations, but you get the idea. Hey, um, question two I, from I, Stephen. I just, I just, just on that, I, look, there are some, again, there's extremes along the, along the spectrum. I, I, even I can have some sympathy for... There's a company I really like. I feel as though I understand the business. I feel that it's going to grow, all that kind of stuff. And I just noticed that over the last year, every time it drops to, say, 86 cents, it seems to be a bit of support there. Things like that, I, I, not that I would ever rely on it, but it's, it's a data point to a certain value in the sense that it seems, and you've got to frame your, your language carefully here, but over the last year, buyers, this stock has always found support at 86 cents. The mistake is assuming that it always continue to to do that but at least you know that for a period there that's what the market was was used to do so there's is that hyper valuable no is it can you build a strategy around them i don't know probably not but there there are some things like that that i can at least go yeah that's a reasonable point um it's, it's when people start doing very advanced quote unquote advanced you know, very oscillations and elliott waves and all of this hyper complex yeah, you know, you can start using a lot of statistical tools to manipulate the data and look at standard deviations and, you know, uh, Fibonacci lines and all of it. I just, I think it gets a bit too cute at, at, mm. at that kind of stage. But some of the more, the bigger kind of things, it's sort of like, again, it, it doesn't inform, but where it's, it's interesting from a game theory perspective, I, only that I know, well, I might not buy into this, but I know that a lot of people do. <laughs> and I know <laughs> that a lot of people have bluff, noticed double, that there's very strong support at 86 cents. Mm. And I know mm. a lot of people will buy on the anticipation of that. Being. So there is a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to that's it all. That's the other thing. So Which actually makes it more reliable, funnily enough. That, that's, that's, it's almost one of these, the more people believe it, the more people believe it, the more yep. people use it, the more people believe it, the more accurate it is. Yep. There is that's why there is some, there is some justification, oh, justification is too strong a word. There is some possibility that these things can become their own self-fulfilling prophecies and that by definition then there might be an opportunity there i don't do it i don't even look at i don't even look at support levels mate I, I i have no idea what the share price charts of any of my companies look like i never use them i don't look at them at all um but i can absolutely i, I you know I, I get it i mean i yeah, you I can know, sympathize if, if it, it was the case that more often than not a particular thing tended to work then playing the numbers ben graham the, the father of fundamental analysis bought hundreds and hundreds of companies on the basis that they were trading cheaply relative to the net assets. Mm -hmm. And his observation was, this is this is like, let's be really clear here. Mm -hmm. His observation was simply, when that's true, I tend to make money. Yeah. It, 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 you know, Buffett does more about the business itself, kind of learning from Phil Fisher and others. Graham just said, I've got, he had literally hundreds at a time of businesses that were trading under, under their net tangible asset value and said, 
I assume over time this will just correct itself because mm-hmm. people will probably start paying more for these businesses. Mm. That's not miles away from, no. you know, the, the it's lower extrapolation. candlestick. It's all extrapolation. Say it's, that it people what, will probably what buy do you more. Want to, yeah. What do you want to extrapolate is the question. Do you want to extra- extrapolate yep. business fundamentals or do you want to extrapolate uh, psychology? Um, so, so the yep. other thing is, is, is well, I think- What is likely to be true, yep. Yeah, I, I think for all of these things, even the most, the biggest haters of technical analysis have probably come to that because they have gone on that journey. And I think with all kinds of things, it's worth having, I think, take a lot of things seriously, right? It's like, I, I certainly did. When I first encountered it and someone told me about moving averages, like, oh yeah, what's that? How's that work? Like, look into it. And you'll, you'll reach your own conclusions and, and we've clearly shown what, what ours are. But, but I think going on that journey is, is, is worthwhile and, 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 and doing so with an open mind, I'll say. Um, and, and being prepared to change your mind too because there's, there's certainly things I do differently now than I did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's, uh, yep. it's, I, I think we answered that in the most um, non-threatening uh, way that we could have. Oh, I will say don't do it, by the way. Uh, like you won't, but I will. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's move. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, the other thing I would say just really quickly is if you're using fundamental, at least you're running a business that you know and you like and you're happy to own. If you're wrong about Woolworth share price movement, you should own Woolworth shares. Mm. Um, if I'm buying shares in XYW, I don't know if that's a particular code, because the share price is up or down, when, I, when I'm wrong about it, I don't know what to do with it next. Like, mm. And I don't, own a, I don't own a great business. I'd rather own a great business. Uh, Buffett said, time is the friend of the wonderful business, the enemy of the mediocre. If I'm going to make bets, I want to make bets on businesses I actually like. I don't, you know, well, maybe all this growth is 2% rather than 4%. Maybe it's 6% rather than 4%. Maybe BHP, Fortescue, like, you know, I don't know. Mm. But at the end of the day, if I own the business and I like the business, that's a pretty good start. Well, it comes back, um, it comes back to yeah. the, what you're, you, you're trying to do here, right? Like that's, yeah. If you said to me, you can only trade, that is, you yes. can't hold something for more than a week, you know what? I'm the biggest advocate and adopter of technical analysis because I've got nothing else to to use yeah, under that set of so. under that set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because, as I've made pretty clear, I'm sort of a longer term investor. That's that's where for me, and this is this, this everyone's going to have their own context. But for me, that's why I, I put such little weight on it because if I'm right, this thing is worth five x more than it is today, and if I'm wrong, it's down thirty percent. Whether or not I time a better entry by getting it, you know, five or ten percent lower makes no difference to me. Like, well, yeah, it's better if I can consistently time and get the best entry price possible. But if it's a dud, it's a dud, and if it's if it's to the moon, it's to the moon. And so it's sort of in that context, it's like. Well, why would I use it? You know what I mean? Or, or why would why would I use my time on that when I could use it on more what I feel are more productive things? Yep, I think that's I think that's pretty much bang on. Last one from Stephen. Question two: Why do fund managers have high conviction funds? Surely you wouldn't stick your money into assets where you had a low conviction, would you? <laughs> Which I like. I like. I like the nature of the question. There are there is a reasonable answer. Do you want to have got a reasonable answer? Or you want to oh, the reasonable answer is is that they're just more concentrated, so they're not. So a, 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 whereas a normal managed fund might have 200 stocks in it, you know, a high conviction might only have 30 stocks in it because it's like these are our very, very, very best ideas and we're concentrating. But at the end of the day, there's no formal definition. It's just, it's a, it's a marketing term is what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the term is a marketing term, but you need to know what you're buying. Like, like everything, right? Know, know what you buy. We tell you about shares. Um, <laughs> let, let, let me, let me, be nice and not nice to fund managers at the same time here. Um, if you are a fund manager and you're managing a, your work for a large, so you, let's say you're someone who works in funds management, you work for a large fund, you are, your career risk is making big calls and being wrong. In fact, career risk is making big calls because if you're right, you get a little bit of money. If you're wrong, you lose your job. 
So if you're a fund manager and you work for a big fund, you're going to say, BHP is 5.7% of the index. I'm going to make it 5.6% because I don't like BHP as much. And Woolies is 2.1% of the index. I'm going to make it 2.3% because I like it a little bit more. And so you track the index. If you're wrong, you're not wrong by much. If you're right, you're not right by much, but you don't scare the horses. You keep your job. Everyone gets paid. It's all good. I have more time for, respect for, the high conviction fund managers who say, I'm going to try and pick the best. I'm not expecting to do anything close to the index. Mm. I'm going to be different to the index a lot. Sometimes big, sometimes small, sometimes up, sometimes down. Mm. Um, I'm going to pick the right stocks. Like Anna and I are doing, we've talked before, our, our our, both our portfolios are down 20% over the last year, right? 20% plus. If we were fund managers, we'd probably both be fired by now, really honestly. Like literally, mm. if the market the market's down what? 2%, 4%, something like that, right? Mm. We're down 20%, right? That sounds horrible. And it is, except that if the market's up, if we're up next year by more than the market overall, we're going to make some money. And if we're up over time by more than that, you talk about your long-term performance is, is astonishingly good. Um, if those things happen, it's well worth bearing the volatility for the better long-term returns. But if you're a farmer, you get fired. But Anna would both be out of a job right now yeah. with that performance over the last 12 months. Okay? So high conviction fund, well, you know, <laughs> take, your, take your chances. High conviction fund, expect more volatility. Expect if they're good, you get better returns than you would with some sort of index tracking fund, even if they don't call it that. If they're bad, you are going to have some serious losses. And by the way, if you're investing with a high conviction fund, you better believe in what they're doing. You better be there for the long term. Because if anyone invests with Andrew and I after Andrew's great, I know what you said your long-term returns were. And you said, Andrew, he's great. I'm going to invest at the beginning of 2022 with him because look how good he is. He's high conviction stock picker. After 11 and a half months, oh, Andrew's an idiot. I'm selling all my shares. That was a stupid idea. I'm going to go and invest in some other index fund again. You've done exactly what you shouldn't do, which is buy high and sell low. And you've, you've allowed short-term volatility to drive your behavior. So that, that's the honest answer, Stephen. Um, I think I, I actually feel a little bit sorry for high conviction fund managers because the best opportunity is going to come when they are doing worst and that's exactly the time when most people pull their money out and go somewhere else yeah uh, it's, it's a it's a, it's a it, honestly it's a I, brutal industry it, it funds really management is. takes way too much money from way too many people I'm not going to apologize for the industry itself but I will say have a little bit of sympathy for the individual portfolio managers who have to try and do that because well like, where it is, it's a classic classic example of like a systemic um, incentives right like mm. it, it's, it's mm. why it's so hard to be that person who will go against the crowd who will underperform for long periods like absolutely mm. deliver incredible long-term returns but in a very uh, uh, unfamiliar way and people are only going to notice yep. when you're doing well and they're going <laughs> to yeah. hate you when you're not so fun flows in when yep. you've actually got not many good yes. ideas and the, yes. and the funds flow out when you've got lots exactly of good the ideas. wrong times so mm. a couple of thoughts on that because I, I do know a couple friends who are sort of in that space and they're down, you know, they're mm. concentrated pickers. Yeah. The interesting yeah. thing was is the good ones, there's, there's I, I don't want to name names because they they're not paying me any marketing money. Um, <laughs> but uh, but, I would, I, I, would, <laughs> I would say I would say that there's, there's a couple of really uh, interesting things to look for. Obviously, track record is good. But two, mm. more importantly, consistent messaging. And I know I'll give a shout out to, to Donnie and Joe at Lakehouse, which is a, a Motley Fool company. Um, it is. They were doing so insanely well um, in the first three years that they were doing the, the, the funded open, maybe four years. And the whole way through, they were saying, well, we're really happy with this, but don't get used to it. By the way, this won't last. By the way, we're yep. going to go through tough times. Rather than it really easy at that point. Um, and this is true, too, of a lot of these other managers I know. And so when the tide turned, you actually had a really good 
base of customers who knew it and who understood the mission and understood the journey so that they're not panicking. And in fact, in some cases, I know I've actually put money in. So, so, so I think that's, that's, so I would, I would very much go back and read a lot of their past letters. You'll, you'll get the people who are yeah. careful not to do big victory laps because they just happen to have a good year. <laughs> that's right. The other thing that's really telling, and this is kind of a deal breaker for me if it's not true, is is <laughs> they've got to have a significant part of their personal wealth in the fund. If you don't, and there might be a lot of good reasons, like practical reasons and structural yeah. reasons why it's hard to, and I, I really do get that. Mm. But if you don't, it's just sort of like, it, it's so it's hard to overstate how, how different it makes things. And when you've got... So, Show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And I, I don't, that doesn't guarantee success, but God, I know that team is really trying when, you know, 40, 50% of their wealth is tied up in this vehicle. They're, they're, they're eating their own cooking. Um, that is huge. That is huge. And I, yeah, I would I'll, say anecdotally, it does actually lead to outperformance. Yeah, I, I will say, I will say for me, it's, um, I think 90 plus percent of my money is invested in companies we've recommended, for example, at the Motley Fool. Yeah. And, and for exactly the same reason, um, I, I very, very, very rarely do. If I buy something, last time I bought outside was Fortescue, and that was because I didn't feel confident enough to recommend it for our members. And it was a very small investment for me. And if I'm going to take risk, I'm going to take risk for my own money, not with someone else's money. Um, yep. So that was simply a matter of, I think it's attractive, but am I sure? And can I make a really strong case for it? No. Mm. Okay, well, I won't. But mm. um, others, 90 plus, it's probably 95%, I think, of my wealth is invested in, in Rex. Not that I'm taking a picture of that, by the way, but I, I just fundamentally believe in the same thing. Mm. Um, I could also tell, I, could, I don't think Tosh is going to beat the market, for example. It's owned by one of our income portfolios. I don't think it's going to be the market. It's costing me money to hold Telstra is my view relative to its total return potential. Uh, I could actually ask for dispensation to sell that from our compliance uh, legal team. I'm sure I get that dispensation for exactly the reasons I've just talked about. I just choose not to. And, and it'll cost me a little bit of money. Again, I don't want thanks from anybody. I just, I just, I just feel better doing it because I think it's just not right to do anything different to that. It just, it mm. just you know, I, I can at least look at members in the face and I can turn up to this podcast and to the work I do and say, you know what, I'm eating my own cooking. And I just feel better about that. And if that's if that's the price, then I, I'm not. I don't know a lot of it. It's not costing me a squillion dollars. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Um, but I just I just I just think I just I could ask for it, but I can't I can't justify it morally to myself to say can I please do something different with my members because I feel like I want to. Um, so I just don't. That's kind of just the way I, the way I run. It's 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 just very powerful. I'll, I'll give a blatant yep. plug here. But that's why on on Strawman, it's not just a, it's not just a chat yeah. forum. Like you, there's there's. Virtual yes, portfolios yes, that yes. people manage. When they say, I like this, all right, buy yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. How has that worked out for you? You know, no one's going to be overly critical in the short term or, or any, no one's ever really critical. But what I mean is it's sort of like, it's different when there's a scorecard behind things and it's sort of, you're, you're standing behind these ideas and you're at least accountable or measurable to them. Seems like it's not a big deal. It's, it's, well, maybe it does seem like a big deal. It is a big deal. And I think, I think, it, I think it helps transparency, honesty, a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I and look honestly, the you know, while it ne- isn't necessarily real money at Strawman, the idea of having that track record you mentioned track record before and broadly about fund managers, but just that idea of here's what I have said before. Yep. Here here is the here is the net every uh, <laughs> sounds like a plugathon. Every single Motley Fool share advisor recommendation I've ever made, and I had a predecessor for the first five or six months of the service, um, they are there. Black and white. L- literally every single recommendation ever, the entire scorecard is there. You can see exactly what we've done, exactly when we've done it, uh, when we've sold it, if we have sold it, all that kind of stuff. Those things are absolutely just, it, it's just, it's, it's 101, right? Mm. You see people who say, oh, these 10 stocks have done well. Okay, what about the rest? Or you say, in the last year I've done this. Well, what mm. about the rest? 
Mm. You know, those things really matter. One quick one on track record though, um, the, the reverse of what I just said, if you have a new portfolio manager at an existing fund, don't take the fund's track record. All right. If you know if, and, if Andrew ran Page Funds for five years and did a spectacular job, and, and then Billy the Dog takes over in year six, don't take the Page Funds track record and say, "Well, I, I guess it's a great track record. I'll, I'll keep investing." Um, now maybe maybe Billy the Dog's a great investor, but he's probably not. So just be mindful of not only the fund itself, but the portfolio manager or at least the portfolio team. Mm. Make sure that you you know you're you're looking at the right track record, not just something they want you to say. Nice. With that, mate. Should we uh, wrap this thing up, put a bow on it, as you like to say? And, uh, yeah, pop a bow on this bad boy. We're well over time. Well over time. We are. Have a fantastic Sunday. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. You know all the usuals. Get in touch with us on all the socials or via email. Uh, a quick uh, a quick lead-in, mate. One question we're going to have in the future starts with, it's fun to send you an email because it still exists, despite Andrew's disgust. And I would have faxed this question if I knew how. <laughs> I had a homing pigeon nearby, but this will have to suffice. Oh, so that's a little teaser. Little teaser for next Looking time. But until then... Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.